Hello, everyone. Today is April 29, 2020, and welcome to the Change Healthcare Policy Connection. I'm Deanne Kasim. Today, we'll be talking about COVID-19 testing and surveillance policy proposals to improve the pandemic's outcomes and reopen the economy. Essentially, today's discussion is going to focus on where we are and where do we go from here. My guest today is Arian Malik, Senior Vice President of Research and Product Development here at Change Healthcare. Welcome, Arian. Thank you, Deanne. Glad Arian. to be here. Great. Arian, before we get started, can you please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, what your role involves here at Change Healthcare, and what you and your team focus on every day? Uh, absolutely. So I am responsible for our technology teams that run and operate and build our large-scale exchanges. So that's our clearinghouse systems that do eligibility, claiming, remittance, really the lifeblood of the U.S. healthcare system from a financial and administrative uh, workflow perspective, uh, our pharmacy systems, and our clinical systems, including the Commonwealth Health Alliance. Uh, and so the systems that we run and operate uh, allow for patients when they show up for care to make sure that their insurance information is validated, uh, that all of the automation around uh, claiming and, and billing is done correctly, uh, so that the administrative side of the U.S. healthcare system goes right and well the first time. And then on the clinical side, we do things like help make sure that lab orders uh, go to the right place and get back to the workflow that uh, providers use, uh, and that clinical information is available on point of care uh, in order to improve the U.S. healthcare system. Wow, that sounds like a heavy lift, but I'm glad you're working on it and uh, not me, but thank you for that. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, you also have some ONC experience in your background, correct? Sure. I was lucky enough uh, to work for the Office of the National Coordinator in 2010-2011, uh, working on policy uh, for technology and standards adoption for the U.S. healthcare system. Um, the biggest thing that I did was help set up networks, help set up uh, the, the organizations that were responsible for deploying uh, standards and technology in order to improve the U.S. healthcare system. So, for example, I launched the DIRECT project and the SNI framework at ONC, where we worked on foundational standards for transitions of care, uh, for lab orders and results, uh, and also made sure that the terminology underlying all those systems was up, running, and correct. And a lot of the work that we did got put into stage two of what was then called meaningful use or promoting interoperability. Um, and then after my stint at the ONC, uh, I served on the, a couple of the federal advisory committees that advised the national coordinator. So I served on and was co-chair of the HIT Standards Committee. Um, and then when the Cures Act disbanded the Standards uh, Committee and folded it and the Policy Committee together in, to the HIT Advisory Committee, I now serve on the HIT Advisory Committee. Uh, which is the Federal Advisory Committee that's responsible for advising uh, the National Coordinator on Health Technology Policy. Wow, that's great. That's great experience. That's great insights. And I'm so glad that um, you and I are together to have this conversation today. 
I, I want to set the table about what we're going to dive into. Um, clearly, the current pandemic situation has highlighted the complexity and the many interdependencies of the U.S. healthcare system, including the strengths and weaknesses, um, and this has become particularly evident over the last two months. Um, well, we're looking now at how to continue to test, trace, isolate, and rehabilitate the general public while local local governments, states, and of course the federal government are making plans to reopen part of the economy and get back to some something resembling life before the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, just this week, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce released the letter urging the president, governors, mayors, and county officials to work together on consistent rules for a staged reopening of the economy. And they're asking for guidance that is consistent across federal, state, and local government agencies. Uh, Arian, as you know, there are two major policy proposals that have come out, and I wanted to examine and discuss and get your opinions on some of these. And both of these proposals address surveillance, containment, and a path back to getting back to work. Uh, the dichotomy of protecting public health while improving the economy is, is really something that needs to be considered at multiple levels. So first question, on a national level, where do you think the American healthcare system is in terms of being able to accommodate effective COVID-19 surveillance? Do we have enough data and processes to optimize the use of that data? Sure, thank you. I'm gonna do a little bit of a step back and just walk people through um, some of the pandemic preparedness that had happened prior to this outbreak. Um, so it may come as a surprise to people that the notion that the next major pandemic or the major pandemic that happened was going to look like an upper respiratory infection uh, that would be highly infective to which uh, most uh, people uh, would be uh, not have the natural immunity that many people have to, for example, the common garden variety influenza. This is not a surprise to people. And in fact, coronaviruses were uh, identified as one of the more likely pathogens to cause a global worldwide pandemic. And global pandemic preparedness has been a topic of the U.S. federal government for uh, many years. It really started at a, at a fever pitch uh, after 9-11 when, as some people remember, uh, there was an anthrax scare. Uh, people were sending uh, envelopes of white powder that contained anthrax spores to a variety of uh, policymakers. And it really highlighted uh, the importance of pandemic preparedness, whether it was uh, a, a bioterrorism attack or uh, as we are in the middle of, a natural uh, pathogen that uh, drives chaos worldwide. And in order to respond, uh, a number of folks put in place what are called disease surveillance systems. The word surveillance has uh, sometimes a connotation of, um, of a privacy intrusive kind of state monitoring system. But in this context, surveillance is about having the information flow so that we can detect uh, disease outbreaks in real time and then put together the appropriate response. And the, the um, the lifeblood of our disease surveillance or public health surveillance system is a set of data feeds that are coming out of uh, emergency departments in hospitals around the country um, with expanded flows that are available for what are called sentinel sites, uh, which are sites that are selected to be very likely to be majorly impacted in disease outbreaks. And the thought process is we should have 
the feeds that are available uh, and be able to detect in real time uh, that we have an outbreak. And it, as it happens, uh, those feeds are in place. Uh, many of the policy hooks uh, that are there for those feeds uh, were put in place for meaningful use or promoting interoperability. Uh, and the signals of this outbreak were ready and apparent uh, as early as very early in March. So for example, in New York, you could start to see uh, the disease outbreak start uh, as evidenced by ED visits in, in New York. Uh, Farzad Mastashari, who used to be national coordinator for the, for, uh, for the United States uh, for health information technology and formerly served uh, in the public health department in New York City, uh, actually put a lot of those systems in place in New York City. Uh, and on, I believe it was March 5th, uh, he went in, maybe it's March 4th, he went in, he looked in, he says, oh, look, it you know, looks like there's a, there's what, what appears to be evidence of above baseline trend in influenza-like illness. This looks like it's the beginning of a coronavirus outbreak. Um, and I believe it wasn't until the 24th that uh, New York put on the brakes. So, you know, we have much of the infrastructure that we needed in place. Uh, part of the issue here is that we've underfunded public health um, and the people who were looking at those dashboards just weren't there. Uh, and the, 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 policy, um, the policy action that needed to take place in between having the dashboard and driving some of these responses uh, fell down. I think many people have heard the story of what happened with testing um, early post, uh, you know, early in this epidemic and some of the issues and fumbles that we had of getting uh, test availability out. Folks like Scott Gottlieb, uh, who used to be administrator for FDA, uh, in the Trump administration has been on this issue since uh, early in January, uh, making recommendations about test availability. And there was a clear window early in this epidemic and outbreak where expanded test access and the traditional means of public health, uh, which are testing, contact tracing. So contact tracing is when you identified somebody as positive, you call them, you find out where else they've been in contact, uh, you get all the people they've been in contact with and you make sure that they're able to isolate in place uh, and work from home for a while, uh, monitor them for, symptom for symptoms. If they get symptoms, do the, the same level of contact tracing. These are highly effective uh, public health tools and countries like South Korea, New Zealand, uh, Hong Kong, uh, areas like Hong Kong, uh, Singapore have put these tools in place to great effect to contain what could have been a very disastrous uh, COVID-19 outbreak, uh, manage it and mitigate, it the, mitigate the effect in, on the economy. Round about mid-March, it became very clear that our window to put that level of early detection, early contact tracing, and put a lid on the outbreak and manage some of the, some of the impacts, that window had passed. And we were in an area where the major risk was overwhelming hospitals, emergency departments, uh, ICUs, uh, ventilator techs. And we were on the verge of a fairly catastrophic um, set of impacts on the US healthcare system. We saw some of the, some of the outgrowth of that, uh, most notably in New York. I think we saw Italy as a warning lesson for what could happen. 
Uh, and we very wisely put the brakes on. Unfortunately, we put the brakes on uh, at different times in different places in different ways. Uh, and so we start to see some of the tail end of the slowness in putting the brakes on uh, in terms of higher case totals and higher death totals. And one thing that's a little hard for people to wrap their head around is that epidemics are uh, exponential phenomenon. Um, what that means is that there's a doubling time and uh, you know, doubling means you go from two to four uh, to eight to 16 to 32 to 64. And you know, in 10 doublings, you go from one to a thousand or two to a thousand. So uh, the rate at which these epidemics can go out of control is hard for people to wrap their head around. We were seeing doublings every two days in New York. And so you know, if you'd stopped, if you put a shelter in place order a week earlier or eight days earlier, you could have saved literally, uh, you could have had one eighth the death rate and one eighth the case total, one eighth. So divide that death rate by eight. Um, everybody, uh, that's the number of lives that you would save. Um, and once an epidemic goes out of control, it's really hard to put the brakes on and then get the case totals back down to a point where you can test and trace. So that's where we are right now as a nation. Um, I mentioned disease surveillance and the, elect the uh, emergency department uh, surveillance signals that are, that are basically feeds that are coming out of the, the emergency departments. The other lifeblood of the public health measures is electronic lab reporting and case investigations. So we have a framework um, that works in the U.S. of lab data that flows into public health. Um, and all of our public health departments are getting all of the positive uh, electronic labs so that they can follow up and do case investigations. One of the problems that we've seen is that not all of that lab data it contains this, the necessary demographic information and address information um, that's useful for contact tracing. So we're working through some of those issues. Um, and the third pillar is, uh, is case investigation. That means getting clinical information uh, so that you can inform case response. You can look at risk factors. Uh, you can do some of, the, some of the heavy lifting that CDC traditionally has done in disease, disease outbreaks like HIV, trying to figure out what's causing this, what are the risk factors, what are the predictive factors. I think a lot of people have heard about people coming in with shortness of breath, Maybe there's some blood clotting going on. What are the risk factors for driving that? Does diabetes drive uh, differential risk? Does smoking status drive dif differential risk? That kind of case tracking and case investigation is imperative for us to get a handle on what this, what this uh, outbreak looks like. Um, we mentioned testing. And you know I think we're still at a level where test availability has gotten a lot better. Um, the national labs uh, have what are called PCR machines uh, that can look at the RNA signature of this virus and figure out uh, where it is. But uh, I, you know, I've got in my family, my daughter had uh, suspected COVID, uh, my sister-in-law, uh, her daughter, uh, actually both of her daughters had uh, suspected COVID and none of them got testing, not because the test availability wasn't there in the, in the, the national labs, because right now it's just too hard to get um, to drive, go to a drive-through testing site, um, and all of our physicians' offices are closed because we don't have the protective equipment uh, that our physicians need 
uh, in order to do uh, COVID testing. So, you know, there's some critical pieces of the infrastructure we need to get working, um, get better, and get better in shape so that we can support getting back to that, as you mentioned, test, trace, and isolate, getting back to the place where we've got a, an outbreak that we can keep a lid on, um, moderate, and make sure that it's well contained so that we can go back to work. So I think that's important kind of context for how do we get the situation and then how do we get out of this situation before I think the policy uh, conversation is now switching from, great, we put the lid on, how do we take the lid off and keep Americans safe? And I think that might be a good time to talk about some of the policy frameworks that have been, have been put out and are under discussion. Great. Well, thank you for that. It sets the table very well. Um, and on that note, the first proposal that I wanted to bring up and get your take on, uh, the title of it is the National COVID-19 Surveillance System, Achieving Containment, and that is put out by Duke's Robert Margolis Center for Health Policy. Uh, some well-known authors here, Mark McClellan, Scott Gottlieb, Arzad Mastashari, Caitlin Rivers, and Lauren Silvis, just to give them credit for all their hard work. Um, so, Erin, I'll kick it back to you. Tell me your thoughts on this, summarize it, and, you know, what, what are some of the key takeaways? Absolutely. And by the way, that report follows on an AEI, American Enterprise Institute report, that was uh, also uh, kind of co-lead authored by uh, Scott Gottlieb uh, and Mark McClellan and uh, that Farzad uh, Mastashari uh, assisted on some of the surveillance uh, aspects for. Um, so I'll go back to the AEI report because I think it's really the foundation for the surveillance report. So the AEI report noted that there's a four-stage uh, model for kind of return to normalcy. Stage one, which is the stage that we're in right now, is put the lid on um, with these so-called uh, non-pharmacological interventions, uh, social distancing, shelter in place, uh, these kinds of orders that we're all now uh, far too familiar with. Uh, but also make sure that we've got the hospital capacity, we've got the ventilator capacity, and very critically that we've got the PPE, the, the personal protective equipment that keeps clinicians on the front lines safe uh, for dealing with the outbreak. And I think some of the supply chain issues that we're working through as a country, uh, many people are very familiar with. So that's stage one. Stage two is a staged and gradual return to normalcy with testing, tracing, and isolation as the primary tools for stage two. So the survey, disease surveillance and public health tools are really important uh, frameworks for getting to stage two, which is where we start to open up um, return to work, um, start to start the process of easing off. I don't think we're going to be sitting in stadiums for any time soon, but there's a real possibility that we get back to work in, in offices, uh, that we can eat at restaurants, that we can do some of the things that we're used to with a higher degree of isolation, maybe more mask use, but a critical role uh, for being able to get there is having some of this public health infrastructure in place. And so what the AEI report established as the, as the trigger conditions for getting to stage two is adequate testing and some of the public health surveillance uh, and public health tools that are necessary to make test and trace uh, effective. And again, just to remind people, 
because we missed our window early on, we got to a very high caseload. We need to bring that caseload back down to a point where the public health infrastructure can keep it well managed and keep it in place. And in order to do that, then you go to the second uh, report, which is the Duke Margolis report. Um, the AEI report was done in, in consultation with uh, the Duke, Duke Margolis Center. Um, so uh, McClellan and Gottlieb have been working kind of in concert on both of these, both of these proposals. Um, and that's where the surveillance systems come in place. And this is about making sure that we've got, um, as I mentioned, the lab reporting, public health contact tracing, trace investigation, and the surveillance systems in place. So the first part of that is lab reporting and contact tracing and trace and case investigation. And that's really the, the lifeblood of this whole, this whole policy framework. And it's what allows us to return to work but keep the lid on the uh, on the uh, epidemic, so that if people are infected and are positive, the moment we hear about it, we support those people to return to either shelter at home, or as some of the recent policy proposals are talking about, let's use some of the unused hotel capacity that we have, have people shelter at hotels. Um, keep them away from the general population so that we keep a lid on, on the disease. Um, the second part, the surveillance part about uh, of, this, of this policy is making sure that we've got the appropriate dashboarding in place so that if we start to see the case totals come back up and we start to see more ED use and more hospital use, that we know immediately and can take the right interventions. And those interventions might be early on, expanding test capacity and expanding contact tracing capacity. And then, you know, if, you, if that still doesn't work, then you may need to go back to some level of uh, social, you know, additional social distancing and some more targeted uh, shelter in place. But you can't do that if you don't have the tools to figure out where the outbreak's occurring and, and, uh, and what's happening with it. So that's really the framework for that report. It is, hey, we got to get to stage two. To get to stage two, we need to have adequate test capacity and we need to have the public health information flows so that the army of contact tracers that we're, we're wanting to hire has the information they have to work on keeping the epidemic under control. And we need to have the surveillance systems in place so that if there is an outbreak, we know about it in real time or able, and are able to intervene. Sure, makes makes absolute sense. Um, well, I appreciate that overview of that proposal, and I want to introduce the second proposal and ask you to kind of do a compare and contrast with the two ideologies. You know, that second proposal being a new strategy for bringing people back to work during COVID-19, and this was published on the website of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Um, a whole host of authors here, but the main authors are Abic Roy, Bob Kocher, and Lani Chen, and Bob Wachter. Uh, this report discusses strategies for controlling the spread, steps to reopen the economy, including reopening schools, listing stay-at-home orders, which you already mentioned, and contract tracing apps. Also incentivizing employers to do testing in the workplace, um, so a little bit different details, but still the same thing as to really open the economy and, and get this contained so I'll, I'll open it up and get your thoughts on this proposal sure and you know the the person who's most identified with this approach is, is avik roy um and there's a lot of commonality between the proposals so for example the 
the Duke Margolis and AEI reports uh, emphasize the role of employers in as a critical role in in uh, making sure that contact tracing um, has has appropriate effect because I think we're, we know that as as uh, people in the workforce, the first people to know that we're sick are likely our colleagues, coworkers, um, and employers have a significant role to play in in uh, keeping the disease under lid. Where the where the reports differ is in degree of emphasis of the risks and the preconditions that are required to, to open up. So, you know, Avik Roy has been a public champion for opening faster. Um, there's a belief that there is a strategy that allows us to uh, isolate the people who are most at risk from death and return younger people to the workforce. <clears throat> Um, that we can relax faster without as many of the safeguards in place uh, and do so safely. Um, and really the poster child for, the, for this model, if you look at uh, South Korea and New Zealand and Hong Kong as organizations that have put this test and trace, uh, traditional public health uh, approach in place very successfully and kept a lid on uh, their outbreaks. Um, or look at Italy that's that's you know now in a recovery mode after putting the brakes on really, really hard, dealing with a, a very significant uh, amount of death and disease, and is now in the process of returning to normalcy. The poster child for this, this approach is Sweden, um, which has put a more limited set of social distancing measures, much more voluntary social distancing, um, and has emphasized keeping people at greater risk at uh, home. Um, the, the, there's sometimes a perception that the, the Duke-Margolis AEI uh, framework calls for social distancing until there's a vaccine in place. And um, the, there was an Imperial College report that was one of the foundational models uh, that looked at what a, an outbreak of, uh, of uh, COVID-19 uh, would look like that kind of put the, lit the fire under a lot of policymakers. This could be really bad. Um, and there's some words there that, that uh, indicate that we need to be in social distancing and, and stay at home until there's a vaccine in place. Um, and that's really the premise that Avik Roy and this report go from is, you know, hey, what if there isn't an effective vaccine? What if there's not effective treatment? We can't stay locked down forever. Um, and you know, my personal belief, uh, so that's really how the, the two reports compare and, con and contrast. It's uh, a belief that you can, you can mitigate some of the harm by focusing some of the, the distancing on the population most vulnerable um, and still contain the outbreak. Where I think there might be a fundamental misunderstanding is that the Duke Margolis report really looks at stage two, the trigger conditions for stage two, as test availability and contact tracing and pushing the caseload down so that you can keep a keep a lid under it. Um, and you know, once you get to that stage, I think the two reports actually line up around some many of the same recommendations. The risk that we have by going with a more aggressive opening is that we get. Uh, major flare-ups of disease uh, and that we have to paradoxically keep the economy locked down for longer. So this is really a bet at is it safer and better and faster 
to put the lid on a little bit longer, get the infrastructure in place so that you can keep the lid on with public health measures, and then or safely, does that allow us to return to work better and with more public confidence? Or do you take the risk of opening up faster where the downside of that risk is you get more disease outbreaks, you get more fear, and you get less confidence when you finally get the return to work. So, you know, I think those are those are how the two reports lay out. I'm clearly biased towards the Duke-Margolis uh, framework. Um, I, I also, as a as you know, sort of an observation, I think the folks behind those reports have been right more often than they've been wrong. Uh, Scott Gottlieb was warning us about this epidemic early in January. Uh, Farzad was the person who went to New York in early March and said, whoa, it seems like there's a significant outbreak. We need to do something now. Um, so, you know, these are the folks that I, I think have been smart, have put together a really thoughtful policy framework that's reasoned, is backed by evidence. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, they're the, the policy vote. Uh, they, they got my policy vote just because uh, they've been more right than wrong. The policy framework makes sense. Uh, and, you know, it's the one that I would bet on. Um, but, you know, I think every governor right now is trying to figure this out. And we've got a little bit of a, of a natural experiment going on with states like Tennessee and Georgia being earlier to open than maybe Scott Gottlieb would be, uh, would think is wise. Uh, here in California, where I sit, I think we're taking um, a more conservative approach. And, you know, this is an area where hopefully there should be some commonality between the reports. You know, I live in the Bay Area, which put a shelter in place order on uh, March 16th. I think it is almost indisputable that that shelter in place order saved a large number of lives here in the Bay Area. We would be ready to open right now if only we had the infrastructure to do so. And that infrastructure is a lot of it's PPE. Um, a lot of it is test capacity and testing locations. Um, and some of the public health infrastructure that we're talking about. So I think we're really moving quickly to this world where the public health infrastructure and the surrounding supply chain infrastructure are really our rate limits for safe opening. I think the Bay Area provides a model for how you can exit, but it's still a little concerning that we haven't met the rest of the policy preconditions uh, to be able to do this. And this is where the energy and attention of our policymakers uh, needs to be. I'd note that, uh, I forget whether it was yesterday or the day before, uh, a number of policymakers uh, wrote a letter to Congress asking for on the order of 40 something billion dollars for doing, uh, for hiring a workforce to do contact tracing, for making sure there's better test availability, uh, for making sure that there's uh, measures in place to shelter people in, in hotels if, they're, if they need quarantine. Um, so the policy window is very rapidly moving to making sure the infrastructure for stage two is, uh, is there and in place. And um, you know, I, hope we, I hope we execute uh, quickly um, so that we can get the best balance of returning to economic normalcy while keeping Americans safe. And you know, I just point out that we're not gonna have a productive economy if people are afraid of their own lives, but also afraid, of, uh, afraid for the lives of their parents um, of their other family members or their friends. And I note that the U.S. 
you know, each country that's been affected by this has their own set of particular issues. You know, Italy was a was an aging society um, and saw some of the impact of, of uh, the, the uh, large number of older Italians in the disease impact uh, in Italy. The U.S., we have a large prevalence of, um, of disease burden, uh, diseases like uh, type 2 diabetes, and the notion that we can isolate just a few people uh, who are at significant risk, I think, doesn't actually uh, take into account um, who this disease impacts and some of the terrible stories we've all heard of uh, folks who uh, were in their 20s, 30s, 40s, uh, and uh, had very serious uh, health consequences or, or died uh, based on, uh, on this disease. So I, am, I, I believe the best way to open the economy quickly is to keep Americans safe, and the best way to keep Americans safe is to put some of these uh, public health measures and preconditions in place. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. In fact, uh, right here in Congress, we're talking about CARES Act 4.0 as it's being talked about um, inside the DC Beltway. And one of the things that is being looked at very seriously is funding state governments for hiring of contact tracers. And I think you're going to see different approaches to that. Um, it's interesting to compare your experience in the Bay Area. Um, I'm based in Maryland and Governor Hogan uh, shut us down, uh, non-essential businesses, uh, staying home, work from home about the same time. Um, you know, unfortunately, we still have not reached our peak of cases here, um, so we have a ways to go. And I think it's interesting that he did not put an end date uh, to when we will reopen things. He's uh, listening to his advisors, both business and on the healthcare policy side and public health as well. Absolutely. Any last? Um, and then any, one more, one more, yeah, one more policy, uh, one more policy piece here is that the Duke Morgolis uh, Center is about to announce uh, a couple of super geeky uh, policy uh, frameworks that really looking at interoperability to support public health. Uh, so I would expect some of that to come out um, today uh, as we're talking. Um, so, you know, should have already come out by the time uh, folks are listening to this podcast. Um, and that really lays out a framework for, uh, for how to improve the information flows for public health in the short term to support a return to work. That's great, that's great. Thank you for flagging that. I know that's something that um, I'll be looking at and hope our listeners do as well. Well, Arian, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today about this really important topic. Uh, before I close this out, I'd like to, of course, say a big thank you and a shout out to all of our healthcare workers on the front lines, the folks that are delivering our stuff, working in food, and all the other folks that are just making sure that we get what we need. Um, thank you for all you do. For our listeners, don't forget to check the show notes for links to resources and contact information related to today's show. And stay tuned to the Change Healthcare podcast for more shows covering the enterprise imaging topics and all kinds of other policy and health technology topics that you care about. For more information, visit changehealthcare.com. I'm Deanne Kasim. Thank you for joining us. Be well, stay safe. You've been listening to the Change Healthcare Podcast. For more information on this and other healthcare IT topics, please visit changehealthcare.com. Don't forget to check the show notes for useful links to related resources and our contact information. Thanks for listening and have a great day.